So, uh, like we talked about last week, we are, we are opening up our new series called Summer in the Psalms. This is week two of our new series. And, and in each week, what we're going to do is we're going to open up a psalm, and we're just going to walk you through the text and show you this is the psalm, this is what this means, this is what he's talking about, this is what the psalmist is talking about. And so tonight, like Maddie said, we're going to do Psalm 23. Um, and Maddie just read it, so let's read it one more time to work it into our hearts, and then um, we'll, we'll try to talk about what David means. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, Psalm 23 is probably the most well-known psalm in the Bible. It very well may be the most well-known chapter of the Bible. Even people that you guys know who don't go to church or don't know anything about church or don't know anything about Christianity, they probably know Psalm 23. And, and, and they may not know that it's Psalm 23, but if you say the Lord is my shepherd, they're going to they're gonna know what you're talking about. He makes me lie down in green pastures and uh, his rod and his staff and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. They'll know of what you're talking about. But very few people understand what that means. What does that mean? Why does he call him a shepherd? Is, why would you call him someone a shepherd? What's with the rod and the staff? And where is the house of the Lord? What's going on? A lot of people know of this psalm, but they don't know what this psalm means. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to walk through the psalm and, and learn what this psalm is talking about. What does this psalm mean? And the way we're going to do it is in four parts. And it's kind of a beginning, middle, and end. We're going to kind of break the psalm down into four parts. There's the shepherd, the rod, the staff, and the house. It's kind of a beginning, middle, and end. The shepherd is in verse 1. The rod and the staff is in verse 4. And then the house is at the end in verse 6. So we're going to kind of go one at a time. First, the shepherd. So look at verse 1 again. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's very, you know, that's very beautiful and that sounds very nice, but why does David, why is he calling God a shepherd of all things? It just doesn't really make sense. Like, I'm a sh- the Lord is my shepherd, so I don't want anything. But what does a shepherd have to do with that? Why wouldn't he say, the Lord is my provider, so I don't want anything? That makes sense. Or the Lord is my king, I don't want anything. That's much more spiritual sounding. Why does he call him a shepherd? Well, the first reason that David calls God a shepherd is because a shepherd was David's first job. Okay, if you And you don't have to look there, but in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's a prophet, and he's coming to anoint David as king. And so Samuel goes to David's house, essentially. He goes to the house of David's father, Jesse. And Jesse shows Samuel all of his sons. And, and as Samuel's looking at all these sons, the, the Lord says, nope, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And at the end of the rope, at the end of all of it, Samuel says to Jesse, he says, Don't you ha- do you have any other sons? Because I'm supposed to be here. And Jesse says, well, I mean, there's David, but he's, he's out in the field right now tending sheep. David's first job was shepherd. And for those of you who know, but your parents will know just as well, our jobs impact how we see the world. They do. Our jobs impact everything about our world. Our jobs impact what we do. 
They impact what we don't do. They impact what time we go to bed. They impact what time we get up. You know, can you, hey man, do you want to go do this with us tonight? I can't. Well, why? Because I have work in the morning. Or do you want to go here with us this weekend? I I can't. Why? Well, because I have to work on Saturday afternoon. Your job kind of shapes everything about your day, and your days make up your life. So your job has a huge impact on your life and how you see the world. So one of the reasons David calls God a shepherd is because he was a shepherd, but but David, David's job as shepherd doesn't just impact how he sees God. David's job as shepherd impacts how he sees himself. You see, one of the reasons David calls God shepherd is, is not just because he sees God as a shepherd, but because David sees himself as a sheep. David sees himself as a sheep. Look at verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David kind of sees himself as a sheep who's being led this way and that by the Lord. He's being made to lie down in green pastures. He's being made to lie down by the quiet waters. He can't find his way there on his own. He's being led there by God. He's being led there by God. And, and so you have to ask yourself, well, okay, he sees himself as a sheep. Like that's, you know, that's, very, that's very churchy and that's very nice, but what, what does that mean? What does it mean to see yourself as a sheep? Why does David see himself as a sheep? Well, in order to understand that, we need to understand what sheep are like. Because that will give us a clue as to what David is talking about. Okay, Sheep are two things, and neither of them are, are good. They're weak, and they're foolish. Sheep are weak and sheep are foolish. Let's look at weakness first. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All right, first, the rod. What is the rod for? Well, the rod and the staff are the two things that symbolize the work of the shepherd the most. Like a doctor would be like a stethoscope. The, the shepherd is the rod and the staff. It symbolizes what a shepherd does most for his sheep. The rod is for protection because sheep are weak. The staff is for leadership because sheep are foolish. The rod is for protection. Now, remember, this is in David's time. This is the time of kings and wars and armies and all these other things, okay? Now, in David's day, if you were weak... What would another army probably do to you? They would probably come to you and, and you say, you know, that you'd fight them and they'd kill you. Well, if you're weak, you probably wouldn't fight very much. So something even worse would probably happen. You'd probably be captured if you were weak. You'd be captured by another king and you would become their slave. Okay? Does that make sense? You would become their slave and they would say to you, serve me or die. Make sense? Serve me or die. And this is why David sees himself as a weak sheep. But you say, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's great, but I'm not really worried about, like a conquering army doesn't really have a lot to do with my life in school. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't really apply to what's happening to me. And I think America's defenses are doing pretty well. We've done pretty well for the last, you know, 200 and some years. I think we're going to be okay. And you're right. And I would agree with you. I don't think you need to worry about that. But every one of you, And this is where it applies, and this is where this weakness comes in. Every one of you is going to eventually go to school, 
Every one of you at some point tonight is either going to look at your computer or your TV or your phone. And every one of you eventually is going to want a boyfriend or a girlfriend at some point. These things can enslave you just as much as a neighboring army. These things can enslave you just as much as a neighboring army. Now what, now, what do I mean? How can this thing become your master? Tim Keller, who wrote this book that I'm going to talk about every time that I'm up here while we're going through this series, Tim Keller's the guy who wrote this book. It's called The Songs of Jesus. And each, each, each day is a group of psalms, is a, is a group of verses. Each day, a page a day. And at the end of a year, you will have gone through every verse of every psalm. At a page a day, you will go through every verse of every psalm. And it's not in this book, but Tim Keller gives this amazing example. And this is where it applies to your life. And this is where the weakness comes in. You want to know how you can tell if you're enslaved by a thing or not? If you're enslaved by a relationship or not? If you are enslaved by school or not? Here's how you can tell. And he gives this amazing example, okay? Here's the difference between a boss and a slave master, okay? In today's world, you work for a boss. You go to work for a boss, okay? That boss cannot do anything he wants to to you. He can't. he, He might be able to yell at you, but probably not very much because he would get in trouble. He certainly can't lay hands on you because he would get in trouble. You can, you can refuse to show up to work. You can go to work and you can sit there and not do anything. And the worst thing your boss can do to you, according to the rules, is fire you. This is the worst thing your boss can do to you. Okay? Make sense? Is that okay? Not so in David's day. A slave master is not a boss. A slave master can do anything he wants to to you. If he wants to beat you, he can beat you. If he wants to lock you outside with no food for several days, he can do that to you. There are no rules. If it's a slave master, there are no rules. You want to know if if you're enslaved to a relationship, if you're enslaved to your computer or your phone or school, here's how you can tell if it's a slave master to you. There are no rules. There are no rules. Let's take dating. I, I, I know that I shouldn't do this with this girl. I know that I shouldn't do this with this guy, but I, but I, I, I kind of want to, and, and I, just, I know I shouldn't, but, but I don't want to lose them. I don't want to have an awkward conversation with them. I don't want them to start to back away, so, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to give in. There are no rules. You've broken that rule. You, there was the rule, and you've moved it aside. There are no rules. You're, you're its slave. It, it is your master. If I, don't, if I don't have a boyfriend, if I don't have a girlfriend, it, it's over for me. You're slave to it. For your computer, let's go to the computer screen or your, or your phone or your television. I know I'm not supposed to watch this. I know I'm not supposed to look at this, but I just, I feel this pull and I really want to kind of, and I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget the rules for just a minute and, I, and I'm going to look. I'm going to look at this. There are no rules. It's your master. And then, and then with school, with school. Remember, and what does the master say to the slave? Remember, serve me or die. And you say, what does that have anything to do with school? I run into this a lot around here, especially. 
If you don't get, and there's nothing wrong with doing well in school. Of course not. You're supposed to do well. But if you don't get this grade, or if you don't get put on this short list, or if you don't get, on, if you don't get to where this list of colleges will accept your resume, it, it's over for you. If you don't get into this class or get this right now, it's, it's, it's over. Your life is void. It doesn't mean you are, you are, for lack of a better word, you have no life. School is saying to you, serve me or die. I know I shouldn't do this with this boy or shouldn't do this with this girl, but, but I'm going to serve me or die. That's what it's saying to you. There are no rules. It is your master. I shouldn't look at this. I know I shouldn't look at this. There's the rule, right? And then you look at it anyway. There, it, it has its way with you. There are no rules. Serve me or die. You are weak, and it has taken you. I will never forget. I was going to, all, so many stories start like that. I will never forget, but I really won't. I was going to uh, church camp. This was, I was a sophomore or junior in high school, and I was going to church camp, and I was sitting in the back of the bus with my friend Mel. Her name's not really Mel, but I'm not going to tell you that. And so I was sitting with my friend Mel, and, and I'm sitting with her, and true story, and I, I'm sitting with her, and she's telling me, she's my age, maybe a year older at this point, and she's telling me about how she and her boyfriend uh, had begun sleeping together, and they had started sleeping together, and I thought, oh my gosh, and so I'm talking to her about this, and I will never forget, she said this to me, she said verbatim, on the way to church camp, and Mel and I had been in church together our whole lives, she was a church kid, whole lives, and she said, I know I'm supposed to stop, I know the Bible tells me to stop, I know the church tells me to stop, I know my parents tell me to stop, if, if they knew, they would tell me to stop, but I'm not going to stop. And I said, why? And she said, because it feels too good. I will not stop. Guys, serve me or die. If I don't have this, it, my life's not going to mean anything anymore. If I, if, I, if I just had a boyfriend, I would be so much happier. Your life is absent of happiness without, without, if you're not dating someone. Your life is without happiness if you're not on this part of the academic success in school, or if you get looked at by this college, serve me or die. It, look at what happened to Mel. This sin, she was weak, and this sin ate her. It consumed her. In, in Genesis 4, verse 7, it's Cain and Abel. You guys remember this? Cain and Abel are brothers. Cain, spoiler alert, Cain kills Abel, this whole thing. And, and God, before Cain kills Abel, God comes to Cain, and he's speaking to him, trying to get him to see how deep this is getting for him. And God says this to Cain, and it's in, you don't have to turn there, but it's in Genesis 4, verse 7, and God says, Cain, if you do well, you will be accepted. But if you do not do well, sin is, and think about, think about the sheep and being attacked and being weak. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. That word crouching, it's only used in the New Testament when it has to do with animals like leopards or lions. Animals of prey that prey on other things. Sin is crouching. And it consumes. And it devours. Serve me or die. It enslaves us, these things. They enslave us. They become our masters. Because we are sheep. And sheep are weak. So we need the rod of protection. Now, we're not just weak, though. Remember, we need the rod of protection, but we need the staff of leadership because sheep are also foolish. Sheep are foolish. Look at verse 4 again in Psalm 23. And then we're going to do some flipping. 
Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Your staff. The rod is for protection. The staff is for leadership. You may need your table of contents for this one. Help out if you need it, leaders. Uh, Turn to Titus. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Coolest name in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And we're going to look at how we, are, how we are weak, but we are also foolish. And this is so important to understand. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And this is Paul speaking. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Okay, so you... You saw it right there, verse 3. For we also once were foolish. There's foolish in ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. There's that weakness. So we're enslaved, we're weak, but it's more than that. We're foolish. And what does that foolishness lead to? We are deceived. Deceived is when you believe a lie. If you believe a lie, you have been deceived. Does that make sense? So we are weak, but we're also we're deceived. We have believed this lie. And, and you think back to Mel, She's, she had heard, she had heard that if you will wait, the joys of waiting will be better than the joys of having it right now. The joys of waiting will be better than the joys of having it right now. She heard that, but she was deceived into believing that it would be better to do this now. That there would be more joy if you do this now. And, th- and it's not, that's the fruit, okay? That, that belief is a fruit of a deeper root. This sermon is not about purity. The sermon is not about waiting. It's not about that. There's a deeper root to this. The root of all this, the cause of all this, is a deeper deception. The deception of, hey, if you wait, it's better. And you don't believe that, you're deceived, it's deeper than that. The core of all of this is, is the belief that Jesus, wanting Jesus, pursuing Jesus, going after Jesus, and doing what he asks is better than anything else. That's the truth, and we don't believe that. Our hearts are deceived. We're weak, so we're pulled away, but we're deceived into it. Now, where does this deception come from? Where does this lie come from? Keep a finger in Psalm 23 and flip over to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. And this is a verse that I think a lot of you guys probably know, but let's, let's drive it home for you guys tonight. Jeremiah 17. Now, so remember, we are, we're weak, but we're also deceived. Where does this deception come from? Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart, our own hearts, are what deceive us. It's your own heart that does this. And you say, well, it's not, it's not my own heart, though. It's the rest of the world. The world does all these bad things, and I see these bad things, so I want to do these bad things. It's the world. Yeah, but what is the world full of? It's full of people. People whose hearts are just like your heart, that are deceived and bent. And so they start doing bad things, and you see that, and your heart pulls, it, pulls itself into it. Our hearts are deceived. It's our own heart that does it. Listen to, listen to Psalm 41. 
verse, I'm sorry, Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5. This is David speaking. Psalm 51, 4 to 5. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, Lord. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From the time of birth, our heart is bent. Our heart is deceived. Our heart is bent towards wanting these things that are not righteous, that are not good. Our heart is weak and our heart is deceived and it pulls us this way. And if you don't believe David, listen to God. This is God speaking after the flood in Genesis 8. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the desire of man's heart is evil from his youth. That means childhood. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. The belief is kind of you're born really nice and awesome, and then over time the the world just kind of jades you. And the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that from birth our hearts are bent the wrong way. We are deceived from the beginning. We are weak from the beginning. There's a song called Come Thou Fount. And you guys, it's Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. It's the one... And I raise my Ebenezer, and everyone's like, What's an, what is an Ebenezer? Is that the, the Christmas carol, the guy? And like, that's come thou fount, right? And so in that song, though, there's a part of the chorus that says, listen to this. And listen to what we're talking about with the heart being bent. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone. Prone means more likely to. You are more likely to wander like a sheep. You are more likely to leave the God you love. If left to your own, you will leave him. You will turn away. Our hearts are deceived and our hearts are weak. We're sheep. We're weak. And sin overtakes us and we are foolish and deceived and we want it to. What's the reason you do this stuff? Because you like it. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. Our hearts are bent this way. I know I'm supposed to stop, but I don't want to stop. At the very bottom, I don't want to stop. Serve me or die. It is your master, but here's the problem. You like being in slavery. That's the problem. Think about back back in the Exodus when the Israelites are leaving Egypt and they're wandering in the desert. What do they complain about over and over again? Moses, take us back. Back where? Back to Egypt. They miss slavery. They miss being enslaved. And it's no different today. That's why the Bible will never go out of date. Because the human heart will always be the same. And the Bible is the only thing that accurately says, this is what's going on with the heart. So we're weak and we're foolish. Just like sheep. Just like David is. So how do we get out of it? What do we do about it? You know, this is summer. You've got to have good news in the summertime. What, how do we get out of this? What happens? God gets us out. God gets us out. Look at Psalm 23 again. Psalm 23, and we're going to read verses 4 through 6. Psalm 23, verses 4 through 6. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's very, it's very worshipful. Like it's very, he's happy, he's joyful, he's worshiping. Why would David be so worshipful at a time like this when he knows about the weakness and the foolishness of his own heart? How can he worship? Well, because, verse 4, even though I walk through the, sh- the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. God is with him in this time. Just like we learned about last week with Psalm 13. God is with him during this time. And God's rod and his staff, they protect him. Now, we've talked about the rod some, but what is the rod? What is that? What does that mean? What is that about? You don't have to turn there, but listen to 2 Samuel 7. I mean, you can if you want. It's not going to hurt my feelings. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 through 15. 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 through 15. And God is talking to David here. And he's talking to David about his son, Solomon, who's coming. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits wickedness, I will correct him, here it is, with the rod of men. And with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So, so David is being talked to by God. David's going to have a son named Solomon. And he says, when Solomon gets it wrong, when Solomon begins to wander away, I will correct him with the rod of men. I will correct him with the rod of men. And there was a guy named Saul who came before David. And Saul just went crazy. And God says, I will correct him with the rod of men that I did not give to Saul. What's the rod of men? The rod of men is correction from those who love us. It's God correcting us through those who love us. The rod of men, the rod of other people. People coming up and saying, don't do that. Bro, it really, it really worries me what you and your girlfriend are doing, what you and your boyfriend are doing, what the, the things that you've been putting into your body, the things that you've been saying. It really worries me. That's the rod of men. Saul didn't have that. If you ever read about it, King Saul went crazy. And he went crazy because our hearts are evil and he had nobody there to correct him. Nobody there to pull him back and say, bro, wh- what are you doing? He had nobody to do that. And so he went off the rails. But God is promising with Solomon, with your son, I will bring people who love him into his life to correct him. The rod is protecting him. I worked at a summer camp for five years. And um, the worst kids at that camp were not the, the kids who gave us the biggest headaches, were not the kids who came from broken homes. And they were not the kids whose parents were, were all over them in a good way too much. It wasn't either of those. It was the kids whose parents let them do whatever they want. Those are the worst kids. The kids whose parents let them do whatever they want. Why is that? Because we are designed by God for correction. We're designed for the rod of men. We're designed to be corrected. We are designed to be corrected by those who love us. Listen to 2 Timothy, 23, 2 Timothy 2, 23-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting, there's the rod of men, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. 
Perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. There's the snare. There's the weakness. They've been captured. And escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive. Does that not sound like a weak person being enslaved by deception? Through the rod of men, through correcting our brothers, we are rescuing them. That's how the Lord rescues us. That's how when a sheep begins to wander, the Lord sticks the rod out and moves him back. And that's how the rod keeps evil away. That's how the rod keeps evil away. You see, your parents begin to put rules down to keep you out of things. That is the rod of men. James 5.19 My brothers and sisters, if you should wander away from the truth, so prone to wander, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring you back. Someone should bring you back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from their error will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. We are rescued through people coming around us. We are prone to wander. And when we wander, God brings us back by the rod of men and women who will speak up in love. It is such a mercy from God when a fellow person will come in and say, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. Why are you doing these things? You've got to stop. When they will forsake looking cool and they will step into the awkwardness and say, I'm not comfortable with what you're doing. That is a mercy from God. That is the rod of men. And then we've got the staff of leadership. Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He makes me. He leads me. He guides me. It is the staff of leadership. We cannot find peaceful waters on our own. We can't do it. Remember the guy from Psalm 13 last week? How long will you let me counsel my own soul? I can't figure it out. You cannot find peaceful waters on your own. You can't do it. You won't be able to. Well, I think I can. Okay, do your thing. Good luck. Have fun. You won't be able to do it. It's going to be horrible, and it's only going to get worse. Our hearts, but, but it's not just a rule. Like the rule is you can't find peace. Your heart is broken. You are prone to wander. Born in sin, born in evil. You want these things. I'm not going to stop. I don't want to stop. Serve me or die, and you like being enslaved. The Lord must set you free and lead you to pastures, to water. He has to lead us there, and he keeps us there with the rod. Finally, last thing, he leads us home. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, what, what is the house? What is the house of the Lord? And we like to think that it's heaven. And it's not what David's talking about here. You gotta remember, this is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, think about it. Your house is where you dwell, right? That's where you live. You dwell in your house. Where does the Lord dwell in the Old Testament? He dwells in the temple. This is what the house of the Lord is. I will dwell in the temple. But David says, I get to live with him forever in the temple. You can't just go into the temple. You can't just walk into the temple and dwell with the Lord. You're too sinful. You're too deceived. You're too evil. 
And you've already committed these sins, so you can't like go back and fix them all. You see that? You can't go back, you can't take the words and put them back, or the things you've seen and get them out. You can't, you can't do that. So you have to, how do you get into the temple? There has to be a sacrifice. You have to sacrifice something, and that sacrifice is payment for your sin. The Lord is my shepherd. So what do you use to pay for your sin? A lamb. You use a baby sheep. And every day you have to do this. This is the way it was in Israel. Every day you had to pay for your sins over and over and over again because the sacrifice would wear out and then the sacrifice would wear out over and over again. So you had to pay for your sins that way. That's why you have to go back every day. You can't just go into the temple and stay there because the sacrifice isn't good enough. So how can God be so kind to David? How come David gets in forever? If you have to sacrifice day after day, how can David dwell in the temple with the Lord forever? How does he get to do that? We're, we're too sinful for this. We deserve God's punishment. We don't deserve his correction and his leadership. We don't deserve those things. Why is God such a good shepherd to David? Tim Keller says it best, as he often does. God is the only shepherd who knows what it's like to be a sheep. God is the only shepherd who knows what it's like to be a sheep. Listen, what well, be a sheep? What are you talking about? Listen to John 129. The next day, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11-14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies will be made a footstool at his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. To get into the temple to dwell, you had to make a new sacrifice each day because the old one would wear out. But Jesus was the perfect lamb. And his sacrifice was so complete and perfect that we can enter into the temple now if we place our faith in him, in his sacrifice. And we can dwell in the house of the Lord and stay there. And his sacrifice will never wear out. And his goodness and mercy now, because of Christ, will follow us all the days of our life. And now we can dwell in the temple of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father,